So again, I just want to thank you for joining me on this edition of the Urantia Radio Podcast. We're going to tackle a couple of subjects. We're going to talk about the value of personality from the first paper written by a divine counselor. And I think you'll really appreciate when you think about the, the wonderful gift of personality. And then we're going to spend some time talking about paper 72, which recently I've discovered is the most exciting paper in the Urantia book. And I'll share with you why. So stay right there. Well, we have a lot to talk about on this edition of the Arantia Radio Podcast. I want to welcome you to all my friends and listeners of the podcast, the Arantia Radio Podcast, from the western states, specifically Santa Barbara, California, where my wife and I are staying for a couple of weeks. This is where we met, and this is also where I attended my first Urantia Book Study meeting when I was uh, in Santa Barbara. I got an opportunity to meet Clyde Bedell's son, Barry, who recently passed, and he was one of my early mentors in the Urantia Book, and I would attend uh, the weekly meetings, and he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about the early days of the Arantia book and the conflicts and things like that. Because, you know, when you first start studying the book, unlike today where all this information is at your fingertips, you know, in, in the old days, in the 80s and the 90s, there wasn't a lot of information available. And what you could find was is mainly through publications, the foundation and all that. So it's good to be back. It's good to be here. I want to thank you. I also want to thank Donna D'Angelo for coming on and talking about her new book, and um, I, I also want to make a footnote because I think it is important uh, for my own sake because I gave it a lot of thought, uh, and, and I, I don't want to say it in an improper way, but I do not endorse uh, channeling. Um, you know, in I think it's paper 137, you know, it, it's uh, at Tiberius. And it's right after that part of the Urantia book where they're talking about the women's evangelical core. And then a couple of papers later, uh, Jesus is giving a speech about all the different belief systems that are out there during his time and age. And he goes through each one of them and says, this is, for example, he, he tackles astrology. And he says, you know, the planets and the stars have, have no effect no direct effect on your day-to-day life. And he goes through each of the different belief systems that are out there. And one of them is, you know, speaking to the dead or speaking to the departed. And he makes it very clear that that it just doesn't happen. Now, this doesn't discredit the importance of what Donna's work is all about. And it certainly is my own opinion. So, But is it possible that perhaps she was presented with the transcripts, uh, maybe the uh, the guardian angels who were with the women's evangelical corps, they were per- pretty important people. Is it possible that she's getting uh, information relayed to her to help her appreciate and spread the word that with Jesus, and my whole point of the interview was because Jesus opened the doors. You know, he is, he got rid of that glass ceiling that was holding women back, and it was an important uh, facet of Mithraism versus Christianity in the late first and second century. Mithraism was a competing 
belief system, very similar on many levels to early Christianity. The difference being is that in Christianity, women were allowed to come into the church. And that was not the case with Mithraism. And that eventually, the Orange Book says, is why Christianity won out and won over the converts of Mithraic, of the Mithraic cult of Iran. And so that's the important story. It's the significance that here is this religious teacher in the first century who is treating women and men the same. And it was astounding to the men, and it was certainly even more astounding to the women, i.e. Mary Magdalene, Rebecca, those who went about, as Donna explained, and, and laid the foundation for Christianity. And it's a shame that Paul the Apostle was not more favorable to women. Uh, and even today, you know, there are some sections of the Catholic Church that will simply not allow women preachers. And it's uh, loosely based on the Judaic principle, which is that Eve was the, the cause of original sin. Now, you know, the Arantia book dispels all that, it explains all that, and I thought it was important what Donna was trying to say, and that's why I decided to have her on. And I appreciate the fact, and I've gotten a lot of great feedback from people, but I also want to make it clear that it is not normally my, I don't like to bring things on the Arantia radio podcast unless they're consistent with the Arantia book, and the Arantia book clearly says that there is no such thing as talking to people who have died. Uh, but it doesn't discount the overall profound and powerful message of what I think Donna, the message that she received, is that maybe more women would be likely to read the Arantia book, or maybe they would be more likely to believe in Christ if they knew that he was such a trendsetter, that he was favorable. You know, right now, many people who do not like Christianity uh, typically are of the more progressive crowd who think that God, the Father, is an oppressive term. But if they only knew that Jesus was was inviting to women as well to come and join the kingdom, the kingdom was truly open to all. And that's the better message, and that's the more important message that I wanted Donna uh, to bring to the show, and she did, So, and I appreciate that. I also want to talk about personality. There's a great segment that I read a couple of weeks ago that I felt compared to share, and if there is time, I'll talk about something that I think is so amazing and so wonderful. And it's right under our noses. We're going to talk about Paper 72, uh, the uh, government on a neighboring planet. You know, all this searching going on around the world of UAPs and UFOs, and we've talked a lot about alien life forms. Ladies and gentlemen, we have in Paper 72, and it's really a departure from the rest of the Urantia book because it's the only section in the whole book, Paper 72, that actually specifically talks about a specific uh, life that is occurring not far from our own world, so we know it's in Satania somewhere. And they didn't even give us the name of the planet, which I think is interesting, but we're going to dive into one particular section, and then I'll have a, 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 an important question to ask you. But I want to get into the personality aspect that I read. It's in paper one. And if you want to join me on that, it's paper one, and it's the final section, the spiritual value of the personality concept. And let me just read, because it's such an inspiring section, and I want to share it with you. When Jesus talked about the living God, he referred to a personal deity, the Father in heaven. The concept of the personality of deity facilitates fellowship. It favors intelligent worship. It promotes refreshing trustfulness. 
Interactions can be had between non-personal things, but not fellowship. The fellowship relation of father and son as between God and man cannot be enjoyed unless both are persons. Only personalities can commune with each other, albeit this personal communion may be greatly facilitated by the presence of just such an impersonal entity as the thought adjuster. So it's the spirit fragment. Uh, Think of it as Bluetooth. Think of it as Bluetooth that connects you to another person. And in this case, it's the highest personality in the universe. Think of that fragment. Remember when Bill Sadler talked about a sheet of paper? And that each one of those, that if you rip off just a little bit of that paper, and you you envision that that paper is God, God the Father, and each little paper that you rip off is a fragment. And each one of those fragments is is in the uh, an individual's mind. And it's the spirit working with you through your life, spiritizing your experiences, preparing you on a sub a superconscious level what's ahead. And it's also in a way it's an insurance plan. Because if you as an individual fail to make that choice in your lifetime to to follow or believe in the afterlife or the resurrection or going through that experience where you're born of the spirit, born of the spirit, see? Born of the flesh, born of the spirit. Uh, the, if you choose not to, to take on the eternal journey for whatever reason, your spirit fragment still takes all of those valuable experiences in your life. And those valuable experiences may very well end up in some other human who's evolving on some other planet in some other galaxy because the spirit fragment will be reassigned. That spirit is not going to stop until it finds an eternal partner. And that's where the fusion occurs in the afterlife, where the spirit and the soul, which is your contribution to that partnership, unite. So that's when they talk about the thought adjuster. The thought adjuster is the spirit fragment. It is the thing that adjusts your thoughts towards spiritization. Man does not achieve union with God as a drop of water might find unity with the ocean. I've heard people say they've explained that's what the supreme being is, that we're just drops in the ocean and the ocean is God. But they're saying here that man does not achieve union with God as a drop of water might find unity with the ocean. Man attains divine union by progressive reciprocal spiritual communion, by personality intercourse with the personal God, by increasingly attaining the divine nature through wholehearted and intelligent conformity to the divine will. Such a sublime relationship can exist only between personalities. The concept of truth might possibly entertain apart from personality. The concept of beauty may exist without personality, but the concept of divine goodness is understandable only in relation to personality. Only a person can love and be loved. Even beauty and truth would be divorced from survival hope if they were not attributes of a personal God, a loving Father. We cannot fully understand how God can be primal, changeless, all-powerful, and perfect, and at the same time be surrounded by an ever-changing and apparently law-limited universe, an evolving universe of relative imperfections. But we can know such a truth in our own personal experience 
since we all maintain identity of personality and unity of will in spite of the constant changing of both ourselves and our environment. Ultimate universe reality cannot be grasped by mathematics, logic, or philosophy, only by personal experience in progressive conformity to the divine will of a personal God. Personal God. Do you know how many people in the world can't even grasp that their faith doesn't allow them to get to that point? It doesn't mean they won't, but it takes a long time. I had a conversation once with a woman who was Catholic, and uh, in, I don't know what caused the conversation to come up, but she she looked at the stars, and I know she said something like, God is out there, he's so big, I can't even conceive of him. And I said to her, but doesn't that mean it's inside of you? I mean, if you can conceive of God being out there, what mechanism allows you to see that, to conceive of that? And why wouldn't that mechanism be operative in your own mind? It goes on to say, neither science, philosophy, or theology can validate the personal or the personality of God. Only the personal experience of the faith sons of the Heavenly Father can affect the actual spirit realization of the personality of God. And uh, it's presented by a divine counselor, considered one of the supreme authorities. In fact, the divine counselor that wrote those words, he writes, because I represent the highest source of information available for such a purpose on any inhabited world, I have served as a divine counselor in all seven of the super universes which have long resided at the paradise center of all things. Many times, this divine counselor writes, I have enjoyed the supreme pleasure of a sojourn in the immediate personal presence of the universal Father. I portray the reality and truth of the Father's nature and attributes with unchallengeable authority. I know whereof I speak. And remember, this is the same person who wrote, Ever bear in mind that these profound truths pertaining to deity will increasingly clarify as your minds become progressively spiritualized, successive epics of the long mortal ascent to paradise. It sounds to me like they know what they're talking about. And I wanted to bring that up because personality is such a unique concept, really. We all have different personalities. Our personalities sort of retain the same shape and contour. You know, our lives might, you can see somebody, you can meet somebody. Even the sound of their voice, if you ever notice, if you talk to someone on the phone, uh, their voice doesn't change. The, to me, their voice is, is, is the audio version of their personality. There's something distinct about it, right? Wouldn't you say? I, I know that, in, uh, for example, if, last year I was talking to the sister of one of my best friends who had passed, and I hadn't talked to his sister since I was like 17. So we're talking about, you know, almost 40 years. And you know what? She sounded the same. It was the same person. Nothing had changed. And that's when it occurred to me the value of personality and the uniqueness of personality. Um, I want to switch over now, and while we still have a little bit of time together, and talk about paper 72 and in uh, section 4. Now, it's interesting because paper 72 is government on a neighboring planet. And it falls right after the previous paper, 71, Development of the State, in which the Urantia Revelators uh, share with us 
the ideal state, what we should be working for. It's rather prophetic, actually, because it's giving us a roadmap to the future, development of the state. So it takes us all the way up. It has gone through the entire panorama of the evolution of the human species on our world. Uh, and then it, it, it culminates in paper 71 when it gets to the development of the state, because now we're in the modern age, we have all this new technology, we've literally come out of the jungle. And so they give us some guidelines on what we can do to achieve an ideal state. And then it jumps over to, well, let's take a look at another country on another planet who's very similar to yours. And we're going to do something that we rarely ever do, but it's part of the revelation. And paper 72 is followed by the beginnings of the Garden of Eden, which is that point when Adam and Eve were brought to the planet to continue the uplift. So paper 71, development of the state, takes us as far as we can go, just before Adam and Eve start the new chapter, the new era, the new epic of human life on our world. Then paper 72 jumps over to government on another planet. It's the strangest thing. And it actually describes a, a, a group of humans who were not unlike us. They had them in Adam and Eve that, that defaulted. They had a planetary prince who defaulted and, and joined Lucifer in the rebellion. What's really cool about this paper, 72, number one, I think this paper is the most revelatory part, aside from perhaps the life and teachings of Jesus, but it is the most revelatory part of the entire book. No other book I know of will go into this much detail, unless it's fiction, about life on another world. This tells us about a planet that's not that far behind us. It may have been planet, we're planet 606. We could be learning about planet 607 here. And part three really is quite revealing. Let me share this with you. This is amazing when you think about what kind of knowledge we're being given here. Part three, the home life, paper 72. On this, And I want you to think about the parallels of how we have our life here. Okay, we are... Americas, United States, are considered one of the more progressive governments on the planet. We have freedom here. We have education. We've come a long way, baby. We're on our own continent. We're separated from all the other continents. It'd be very hard to take over the United States. You know, if, if you contrast the development of our economy and our technology and our health and our education and our well-being, and you compare it to, say, you know, Pick some some country in sub-Saharan Africa, and you compare. And they're saying that this home, that this particular group of people on this other planet, are very similar to the to the way life is perhaps on the United States. It doesn't say that specifically, but the the comparisons are obvious. So here we we learn in paper seventy two section three the home life. On this continent, it is against the law for two families to live under the same roof. And since group dwellings have been outlawed, most of the tenement types of buildings have been demolished. But the unmarried still live in clubs, hotels, and other small dwellings, or other group dwellings. The smallest home site permitted must provide 50,000 square feet of land. I believe the average three-bedroom home in America is, what, 10,000 10, feet? 
they get 50. The smallest home site permitted must provide 50,000 square feet of land. All land and other property used for home purposes are free from taxation. Up to 10 times the minimum home site allotment. Now, why would you ask what a book that's got 2,000 pages and it goes off into all these philosophical, why would they take the time to tell us that on this government uh, that occurs on another planet about taxation? When you think about, well, it's it's important. They're trying to help us. They're trying to, they're, they're taking a, a, a different society and they're showing us what they do and they're saying, you may want to try this. This this actually might work out better. The home life of this people has greatly improved during the last century. Attendance of parents, both fathers and mothers, at the parental schools of child culture is compulsory. Even the agriculturists who, who reside in small country settlements carry on this work by correspondence, going to the nearby centers for oral instruction once in 10 days every two weeks, for they maintain a five-day week. That's an interesting clue, right? They actually provide a lot of clues through the narration that kind of tell us that this planet uh, has a different rotation, uh, the the years a little longer than the Urantia year, 365 days. It goes on to say the average number of children in each family is five and they are under the full control of their parents, or in case of the demise of one or both, under that of the guardians designated by the parental courts. It is considered a great honor for any family to be awarded the guardianship of a full orphan. Competitive uh, examinations are being are held among parents, and the orphan is awarded to the home of those displaying the best parental qualifications. How different is that from us? I mean, consider how much our society would benefit if people had to go to parental school so that they raise children that don't become derelict or at risk. It's interesting that the way this country has evolved over the course of 200 years, as as the revelators explained in previous chapters, that they come to recognize that the home institution is the bedrock of the society. And they put a lot of emphasis on making sure that children are taught correctly, that religion is, is taught in the home and encouraged, that health uh, and well-being are prized. Loyalty to service is exalted. This thing tells us what life should be like here in the United States. And that's why I think they're telling us this. In fact, at the end of this chapter, which I'll read, I'll tell you why they were giving us all this information. It goes on to say, These people regard the home as the basic institution of their civilization, it is expected that the most valuable part of a child's education and character training will be secured from his parents and at home, and fathers devote almost as much attention to child culture as do mothers. All sex instruction is administered in the home by the parents or by legal guardians, not counselors at high schools or teachers who try to keep their new gender a secret or they try to teach social activism behind the parents' back, which is what we're seeing in our own country, which is appalling. The Rancho Book writers write, Moral instruction is offered by teachers during the rest periods in the school shops, but not so with religious training, which is deemed to be the exclusive privilege of parents. 
religious religion being looked upon as an integral part of home life. Purely religious instruction is given publicly only in the temples of philosophy. Not so much and not so exclusively is religious are there religious institutions as on Urantia where that we have churches having developed among the people. In their philosophy, religion is the striving to know God and to manifest love for one's fellows through service for them. But this is not typical of the religions or the religious status of the other nations on this planet. Religion is so entirely a family matter among these people that there are no public places devoted exclusively to religious assembly. So it's a nation without churches, really. Church is thought of, or religion at least, is thought of, thought of something in the home. Politically, church and state, as Urantians are wont to say, are entirely separate. But there is a strange overlapping of religion and philosophy. And that, that draws to my mind some of the cultures around the world, more Asian. You know, in pre-communist China, I would say there was more, Buddhism was more of a philosophy than a religion. It goes on to say, until 20 years ago, the spiritual teachers comparable to Urantia pastors who visit each family periodically to examine the children to ascertain if they have been properly instructed by their parents were under governmental supervision. These spiritual advisors and examiners are now under the direction of the newly created Foundation of Spiritual Progress. Maybe we should start that, a Foundation of Spiritual Progress. Wouldn't that be something? Make it uh, completely, what's the word, nonpartisan. Um, what's that word, you know, and you're not exclusive? Oh, the word is non-denominational. Um, possibly this institution may not further evolve until after the arrival of a paradise magisterial son. Children remain legally subject to their parents until they are 15 when the first initiation into civic responsibility is held. Thereafter, every five years for five successive periods, similar public exercises are held for such age groups at which their obligation to parents are lessened. While new civic and social responsibilities to the state are assumed, suffrage is conferred at 20. The right to marry without parental consent is not bestowed until 25, and children must leave home on reaching the age of 30. Marriage and divorce laws are uniform throughout the nation, Marriage before 20, the age of civil enfranchisement, is not permitted. Permission to marry is only granted after one year's notice of intention and after both bride and groom present certificates showing that they have been fully instructed in the parental schools regarding the responsibilities of married life. Imagine how much life would improve on our world if we put a lot more thought into the very idea of, of marriage and what what that entails and the responsibilities and the obligations. It sounds to me like these people really view marriage as a true institution that is integral to uh, the development of, of society. I'm not so sure that that's the current trend on our world. People are not getting married. People don't want the responsibility. They don't want to have children. They're depriving themselves of the most important facets of development in any society. And it concludes with this, divorce regulations are somewhat lax, but decrees of separation issued by the parental courts may not be had until one year after application. 
therefore has been recorded, and the year on this planet is considerably longer than on Urantia. Another clue. Possibly a, a slightly larger planet, slightly farther away from its mother orb. Notwithstanding their easy divorce laws, the present rate of divorce is only one-tenth that of the civilized races of Urantia. Let me just show you the different, because I want you to read paper 72, and it's a pr pretty amazing. It starts on paper 108, or 808. So they talk about the continental nation, which is about the size of Africa, or, uh, I'm sorry, Australia. They talk about political organization, and they too have a representative government. They talk about the home life, it's almost like a country of gardeners. One thing that we have failed in the United States is the emphasis on agriculture has really diminished. And and by the way, I recently learned that during the early periods of, of the industrial age in America and around the world, uh, Thomas Jefferson envisioned a more agricultural or agrarian society, and he had hoped that that would be the tone that was set. But the industrialists wanted to make the cities uh, the primary avenues of commerce, and they were really big, you know, Rockefeller, all these people that were very influential. So one wonders, what would have happened if the United States had developed along more agrarian or agrarian ways? But I like the idea. They talk about how children are taught from an early age to grow food. Imagine if our school, I was just talking about this with my wife the other day, little did she know that I got the idea from here. And she thought it was a good idea. What if we taught children in school how to grow vegetables? What if we had farms and competition and these children could grow food and they could compete? And then they could take the, the food home with them and eat. Imagine how healthier they would be. And you know, nutrition is key to human evolution. Uh, this paper also talks about taxation, special colleges, how they vote, dealing with crime, which is more like, the way the Chinese do it, then, but I would I would guess, and and they say that that information that they put in paper seventy two uh, is only like a decade old. So this this society that lives on this other planet that we're learning about, it sounds to me like they're right around the time we were in the nineteen thirties, where cars were just being developed, uh, there were better travel, increased travel, communication. It's an, it's an incredible read, and it's written by a Melchizedek of Nebadon. And uh, where is that paper? I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, it's the final section, uh, 72, section 12. It says, The recital of the affairs of a neighboring planet is made by special permission with the intent of advancing civilization and augmenting government evolution on Urantia. Much more could be narrated that would no doubt interest and intrigue your ancients. But this disclosure covers the limits of our permissive mandate. And then they write this. Your ancients should, however, take note that their sister's sphere has benefited by neither magisterial nor bestowal missions of the paradise sons. We at least have had the advantage of having a paradise son bestow himself upon our world. And we have benefited greatly from that. Neither are the various people, peoples of Urantia set off from each other by such a disparity of culture as separates the continental nations from its planetary fellows. The pouring out of the spirit of truth provides the spiritual foundation for the realization of great achievements 
in the interest of the human race of the bestowal world, us. Urantia is therefore far better prepared for the immediate realization of a planetary government with its laws, mechanisms, symbols, conventions, and language, all of which could contribute so mightily to the establishment of worldwide peace under law and could lead to the sometime dawning of a real age of spiritual striving. And such an age is the planetary threshold to the utopian ages of light and life. And that's from paper 72. Listen, I don't want the World Economic Forum or the Davos crowd. I was talking about this with uh, Brother Brother Josh in an email exchange. Those guys, they don't have God in their life. They only want to control things, and they only want to try to manipulate people like we're robots or atomized human beings. That's my feeling. That's my opinion. You know, they want to control and manipulate, and they think they can come up with all these contraptions, Bill Gates and all these folks. Here's what I think. I think that we, people who read the Urantia book, I think Elon Musk needs to read this book. I think that Bill Gates needs to read this book. I think that Klaus Schwab, I think that every president, I think that Hillary Clinton, there's a rumor that she had the Urantia book in the White House, although nobody seems to be able to confirm that. You see what I'm saying, though? The Arantia book provides so many keys to solving so many problems. But we get somehow we have to get it out there. And I'm not sure how we do that. I'm I'm pondering that every day. How do we how do we do this? How do we get to forget about trying to make this book mainstream? Let's just get it into the hands of people who are decision makers, influencers, thought influencers in our society that not that are not afraid of perhaps a new perspective. Heck, just giving them paper 72 and publishing it on its own would open up the eyes of many brilliant leaders uh, in our world today if they only knew that we're not alone, that we're not the special case either. We are part of a larger community of evolutionary worlds, and we have to get our act together. And they're trying to help us do that. They're giving us information long before we would probably be able to get it ourselves. But just, it's enough to blow your mind when you think about that here you have in your possession a 2,000 book, 2,000 page book, and and you know what, paper 72, 13 pages. 13 pages out of 2007 that just happens to be about this continental life on another planet far, far away. So I'll leave, I'll leave you with that. I thank you for being a part of this podcast, and I am always open to your suggestions. And by the way, for the people who have done so, thank you so much for your comments about the new book that I've written and published on Amazon called The Gift. Just look for The Gift. Simple, right? The Gift, James Watkins, and you'll find my book. It's not, I, I, I don't know why, I, I was hoping there would be a Kindle version uh, I guess when you get to a certain amount of sales, then they make it available on Kindle. But uh, you should read it. It's it's it's, it's a, a, a an e- I just got an email today from a listener who said that they gave the book to their wife because it really kind of explains the premise of the Urantia book, so it doesn't seem so overwhelming. So thank you for those people who who have bought my book. Thank you to those who are going to buy my book. And any questions or comments you you have about the Urantia book, email me at urantiabookradio at gmail.com. 
Com. So until the next time we meet and we can spend some time together, I hope you have I hope you have God in your heart, and I hope all is well with you. And we'll be back from the West Coast, the Arantia Book Radio Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>